guys, welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. All right, so today's episode is like none other that has ever been on this A Cork in the Road podcast. I am joined today by my friend, sommelier Juan Cortez. He is the most interesting person. I don't even know how to prepare you for what's ahead in this episode because he is the most incredible storyteller. And honestly, for most of the podcast, we don't talk directly about wine at all, but there's this undercurrent that most of his life has been tied in with wine, but he's done some crazy things. And you will not believe where we go with today's discussion. We chatted for a little over an hour and a half when we were talking live on the podcast, and I could have talked forever. It's very true to style of the way that he brings a joy to wine. He always talks about the stories. I honestly think he knows everything about every wine that he suggests or recommends or talks about, but he also has some very high experience in fine dining. He has worked as a sommelier in restaurants for a lot of his life and learning about wine. And he also was just one of the people that opened the brand new garden room in the St. Regis here in Atlanta. He's also worked at Atlas, the restaurant here, and restaurant Eugene. He also did an internship overseas at Noma, and he'll tell you a little bit about that. And he's done a bunch of other non-wine related things that we also talk about because it's just fascinating and it's who he is and his family background is really cool too. So stick around for the whole episode if you can because it's kind of like a series of short stories. He'll go from one thing to the next. You won't believe some of the information that you're about to digest. It is so fun. So yeah, tune in and enjoy the short stories and where we go around the world with Juan. So yes, cheers, take care, and enjoy. We can always put the explicit E in this episode. <laughs> Don't even worry. No, it's so good to virtually see you. Life has slipped upside down. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean... 2020, yeah, you know, I don't really see it necessarily as such of a bad thing. It's definitely going to like cause just a huge shift in like mentalities, personalities, and habits. And every rose has its thorn, you know. I think in the end, we'll be better for having experienced this. Maybe a little bit more self sufficient, a little less likely to rely on always having a paycheck, always having the amount of certainty that we've had for the last while. You know, I know that like the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression definitely like forged a new spirit in the American people. So hopefully this will do the same and we'll come out better. But maybe I'm just being overly optimistic. We'll see. I appreciate your optimism. I mean, why not? Like, what else do we have? Like, you might as well try to be positive. But what are you up to? So you have been in the restaurant world for a long time, but what are you doing right now? And then we'll kind of work back to how you even got to where you are. But what are you up to? So um, I, well, I was, you know, working as a sommelier at uh, the Garden Room and uh, Atlas when uh, the pandemic hit, the garden room was, you, you were there for your birthday. It was packed, right? All the time. We closed down and then I immediately, I was without a job. And, um, you know, I've never really relied on unemployment before, never even filed for it before in my life. So to me, I was just like, that wasn't even an option. And uh, I think I was, you know, they shut the restaurant down on, my last day that I worked was a Saturday and then Sunday, they were like, we're, we're not gonna open. And then by Monday, I realized I was gonna be out of a job. But then uh, by Tuesday, my friend Ari that you interviewed a few weeks ago, um, she was work she's working for Savvy Provisions and she was, you know, just called me and was like, if you want a job, we can, we would love to have you. They have one store that's bigger than all the rest by far and it has a pretty big wine selection. That's the one on Roswell Road. Uh, and so I took a job there. It used to, it was a, it's been a store, like a wine shop in the community for a really long time. I think it was Atlantic Wine before it was uh, Savvy Provisions. And because I've been working in Buckhead since basically like 2010 or so, it seemed like a pretty good fit. So I just went there and I've been selling wine. I also, I've been working with a um, basically a catering company that kind of started up during the pandemic um, that we did a couple of uh, events to kind of like help out as Atlas team members or ex-Atlas team members. And so we did some events with them and then I've been doing seller work. So I've been staying busy 
you know, it's crazy. I've had to turn some people down because it's like at first, when I first was just doing savvy, the quality of life and, you know, the amount of spending time at home, I mean, I still don't do anything. I just go to work and come back home. I go to the grocery store. I go to the park and that's about it. Walk my dogs through Decatur at night, walk them through the Decatur Cemetery during the day. Uh, for a while, the quality of life was actually really good. Then I started piling on a lot of projects. And after a little while, I was like, ooh, got to pump the brakes a little bit and, you know, make sure that I have a little bit of uh, quality, like me time. So, but yeah, it's, it's been really transformative as far as the amount of uh, downtime that I've had. When I was working at the garden, I was getting off of work at like midnight, one in the morning, very frequently. My goal was originally to be a sommelier on the floor of a restaurant, of a, of a great restaurant for, I wanted to get 10 years of experience in because that's just something that they say is like, kind of, if you really want to be great at it, you, you have to put that much work in. And there's a lot of sommeliers, master sommeliers that have not put in, you know, even a year or two on the floor of a fine dining restaurant, which blows my mind. But that was my goal. And when, when the pandemic started, I would have had about nine and a half years in. And uh, it was just really frustrating because I, I told myself that, you know, I might seek a better quality of life later on down the road after I get those 10 years. And now it's like, well, what do I do? I'm smiling because you're one of the most optimistic people just in general that I knew in what, like you always had, like life always was intertwined with your wine studies, your wine knowledge. And I'm just loving how often you're mentioning quality of life, even in the time of pandemic, even in time when you lost your job within like a weekend, you have always been thinking, I still want quality of life. And so all these opportunities, like you're filling up your plate, yet you're staying like chill and cool and like thinking forward in the future. Like that's very you. It makes me like really hopeful. Me and my mother always clash because she's very paranoid and I'm very paranoid. Um, so she always thinks like all the bad things that are going to happen. I'm always like, oh, we'll get through all that. But there's all these good things that are going to happen too. But sometimes like even I, like sometimes I have to be like, okay, like, let's get off this subject. You're starting to bring me down. Like, you're starting to, like, I'm one of those, like, all in or nothing. So if I became paranoid or, or, you know, depressed, I'd be all the way down in that end. So I have to keep myself out of it. Um, and I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes I start getting bummed out or whatever. And like, I, I do know myself, like, I just know I'm like, okay, if that's the case, then I have to start exercising like crazy because then my brain will lift my, my spirits up. But yeah, I mean, I do make plan B. I hope this is, you know, like I said, kind of like the dawning of a new age. Um, you know, 2020, they've been saying this is going to be a, a paradigm shift for humanity for a long time. My dad's an astrologer, so I grew up like hearing about this stuff. What? I did not know that. Okay. This is so interesting. So you're, wow. I did not expect that. Your dad's an astrologer. Where does he live? Is he in Atlanta? No. Um, so it's really, I know it's, it's strange. Like when, if I tell you about my life, you're going to be like, okay, that's really weird. So my dad has a hotel in Columbia, which he kind of built on family land that you know he had inherited. His uncle, my great uncle, uh, Manolo was an architect and so he kind of designed it for him. Our astrology is something that he's done on the side for as long as I can remember. But the, uh, the hotel itself is, you're gonna think it sounds like I'm making it up, but if you look it up, it's a real thing, it's a real place. So it's outside of where I, where I was born and raised, which is Cali, Colombia. Outside of the city, there's a city called Palmira, you drive to Palmira and you drive to a city called Amaime. And then you drive to a little, little, little tiny, tiny town called Santa Elena. And then it's like about 15 minutes up the mountain. Cali is in the middle of a state called Valle, which just means valley. So my dad's hotel is called Osteria, El Mesón de la Sierra, which means the hosteria, the hostel at the foothill of the Sierra. So right when you get to the, the, the mountains, the part where they start going up, my dad's hotel is right there. And he built it very specifically. It's right behind a, a famous um, hacienda called uh, La Maria and it's named after a young lady that lived there and she uh, she passed away kind of dramatically uh, after a love story that was documented by a local writer and it became a book that he wrote that became famous it's kind of like Colombia's version of Gone with the Wind so my father's father my great-grandfather bought the property directly behind that hacienda and um, it's all like vertical you know it's all on a hill and my dad built this hotel that looks like a giant castle. Well, it's not a giant castle, but it's like a, some of the rooms have multiple rooms. The crazy thing is that he built an aqueduct system leading water away from the river through all of our property. And then the water actually runs through the middle of the hotel. And inside the living room, there's a stream that's constantly flowing. And then that flows into a waterfall and then a pool that you can swim in before flowing back into the river. Also, the house is mostly built with quartz rock. 
because my father really believes in, you know, quartz rock being able to retain energy. And he wanted to build a place that was going to be like a hub for positive energy. And then the hotel surrounded by gardens. And there's a, because of the aqueduct system, there's a series of lakes. They're all stocked lakes, tilapia, catfish and carp. And uh, there's a fish there called cachama. It's like a big piranha, but it doesn't eat meat. It only eats fruit. They call them paku, I think, in Peru. And they're more common there. Um, but you can get them in the Amazon, uh, I'm pretty sure. So he's got this like little Garden of Eden set up. And uh, that's where my dad is. And then on top of doing of having the hotel. My little brother lives there with his uh, wife and his daughter. You're right that I like, you, you lost me at like, at like castle on the hill. Like I'm, I'm trying to put this together. I feel like I've known you for a while and you always have awesome stories, but I have never heard of this place. And why aren't you there? Why did you not escape there? That like, can we all go? Like. That's always been kind of like my crutch. Part of the reason I think why I'm so optimistic, part of the reason why I've just kind of done whatever I wanted to do with my life. I never really like, worried about like well am i going to be okay down the road because i knew that you know at some point or another if it hits a fan for me there's a hotel that i can go live in and run and like i said it's like a little garden of eden but i left there when i was 13 years old and moved to america colombia was a really violent place i moved in 1997 uh not long after escobar had been killed but the the cartels were going at it with each other and there's in cali there was a the cali cartel and then there was a cartel del norte del valle which is kind of where the hotel is and they were kind of at war with each other and we had to deal with you know it was it was it was a strange upbringing uh to say the least like my dad we used to stash guns all over the hotel and like only my dad and I knew where they were and that way if we got robbed we would know where um you know if we got if we got locked in this room you know we knew we had a weapon hidden in like most every room like that was like normal uh, as, as a kid growing up, at least, at least if you were, if you had a big hotel in the mountains outside of, like we were a good, you know, hour and a half outside of Cali. And even in Cali, it was hard to get the police to come to your apartment if somebody robbed you. When I was in seventh grade, my dad got, actually got kidnapped. I was in ninth grade. So I remember I was in literature class and my, uh, so my teacher like harshed me out for like not paying attention. She's like, what's on your mind? I'm like, uh, my dad got kidnapped yesterday and I'm still waiting to hear if he like, you know, uh, if, if everything's okay or whatnot. And like, that was just, it was just, you know, that's, that's like reality for like Colombian people in my generation growing up. It just sounds so from a novel, from like movies, like telling somebody that your dad was kidnapped. Like, this is, this is wild. Like, I, I am so, I'm not but, surprised because it's you, but I'm also like, what, what? Like, that's crazy. Full disclosure though, my dad was released very quickly after he was kidnapped. So yeah, we, Weird upbringing, but um, but that's always kind of been like my my thing. Is like whatever happens here in America, if worse comes to worse, I could always just go back to Colombia. I'm a dual citizen. I was born in Colombia, but my mother is American. So you come here, and let's say even just think about 2020 and how hectic it is. You have this frame of reference as like a baseline that is not as common as what baseline of what worse could be. And yet you're even now at this point of thinking, if it gets worse and worse, I'd still go, I'd be able to go back to this place that I had growing up. I mean, it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it's kind of been one of the things that's got in my life. Like, you know, I've done, I've gone on a lot of adventures. I've, you know, gone down the rat hole and like try to see things that I was passionate about. And to me, it's always been like, kind of like, well, if this doesn't work out, you know, so far, Everything seems to be working out well enough. Seems to be working out pretty well. So this is fascinating to me. So when, I mean, obviously this is our, we've connected through wine. You're one of those people that I've seen in the wine industry and you are a leader in the Atlanta wine industry. But knowing that as your upbringing and coming here to America at such a young age, like when did wine become a part of your life or was it always? Uh, honestly, it basically always was. Well, when I was, well, when I was a kid, Growing up in Colombia, kind of a funny story the way it started. My, my father had this like passion for castles and European things. He's never even, as far as I know, been to Europe. He, he definitely like had a, a passion for the culture there. And uh, so at a, from a pretty young age, he had started doing this thing. He had a, someone custom build this, like, it looks kind of like, like a giant walk. It was big. And so he would buy grapes from local grape farmers up on the mountains and foot crush the grapes and then he had this giant barrel of, I had to guess, I'd say it's about a, I mean, it's so, it's, perspective is so different when you're like a little kid. I mean, I used to stand in front of this barrel that was bigger than me. I could definitely have fit inside it. Um, but my dad would just basically crush the grapes and pour the juice into this barrel and let it ferment. 
it had a little spigot and he would let it sit there and after a couple of months of not messing with it he would you know he would taste repeatedly and when it finally tasted like wine he would serve it to his friends mostly and you know he might sell a little bit but it was mostly just reserved for his friends i love the taste of that wine when i was a kid there was something just really familiar about it and he would let me he would let me have some when his friends would come over he had a lot of like friends that were musicians and you know having a castle with rooms it's kind of conducive to colombians party a lot like it's a party culture and my dad's rule was like you can't just drink the red wine you have to have it with a little bit of food but i would just be like okay one piece of one little cheddar cheese cube one piece of popcorn a little they'd give me a little tiny copita like a little glass of red wine and i'd eat the popcorn and cheese and i'd chew on it and then i'd wash it down with the red wine i love that combination like i still i still would do that that sounds perfect now yeah what i did i was a sneaky little kid so my dad i knew liked to take little sips of the wine from time to time so sometimes i'd see him going to the, the dining room just to you know pour himself a little like thimble full and try it and so one time i just hid in the dining room where he couldn't see me and i watched him come into the room and he went behind the barrel so the wall behind the barrel was made of stone from the river and so the stones kind of protruded and there was one i guess up high that my dad could reach that you couldn't really see above it and he just reached up there and he grabbed the little top to the spigot and he dropped it in there and then opened it poured himself a little taste and then shut it and then took the thing and put it back and then after that i always knew how to get to the wine so i had a i had a little tree house outside of the hotel in a mango tree i would go pour myself a little glass of the wine and i'd hide and like run through the gardens until i got to the tree house and then i'd sit there and i'd sip on my wine and i felt so refined and like adult so i started at a really young age the restaurant industry was just kind of like a natural for me because i'd grown up in my dad's hotel you know i spent all my summers there and spent my uh, every other weekend there so like working feeding kitchens talking to chefs talking to the servers sitting in the dining room i always wanted to help and i was a really good fisherman if the chefs were like somebody ordered tilapia and we don't have tilapia i'd be like give me a bowl of rice and i just go toss the rice in the lake and wait till the fish started feeding on it and then just throw the net and catch like a handful of tilapia and you know so so i was in, interacting with, with people in kitchens since i was a little kid so to me working in a restaurant when as soon as i turned 16 i was just like boom i'm there but it wasn't until 2009 i left the restaurant industry and decided i was going to be a commercial fisherman so i have a brother that lives in alaska deadliest catch was all the rage on tv so I told myself, you know, I'm bored with the restaurant industry. I'm young enough that I can do whatever I want. You know, if I was going to do anything, what would I do? And still kind of had that, like, you know, fire to, to want to go and, like, explore the world. So called the Alaska Department of uh, Labor, and I asked for, you know, somebody to give me a, a hand getting a job at a cannery. And they were like, we'll do that, but only if you're here in Alaska. So I was just like, okay, sold my car you know, moved out of the house I was living with my friends, left my stuff in my mom's house, moved up to Alaska. I went in as a, like a processor and I was just like boxing uh, crab legs and gutting fish. It was the worst job. Gutting fish on a line for like 16 hours a day. It's like the, I, I, at one point, I, when I first got there, I actually got sick. I got the flu. And then as soon as I got there, I was like, guys, I'm sick. I have the flu. And I was like, I'm sure they'll be very understanding when I get there. And I got there and I told one of my bunkmates, like, I have the flu and he was like don't say anything about it just power through take some take some dayquil and i was just like what do you talk about he's like you now that you got here they paid for your ticket and now you're saying you don't want to go to work they're going to think that you're a guy that just took the job so that you could get the free flight and that you have a job lined up on a boat because people do that they fly in on that free it's a thousand dollar plane ticket and so they're just going to fire you and then you're homeless in dutch harbor in the winter and that's not a good place to be a lot of people die that way so I was just like, oh no, this is not a good situation. So I just went to work uh, with a fever and, and like my first day, they test you by putting you on the gut line. And then my job was to stick my hand as deep inside the cod stomach as I could and rip out the guts and then pu push it down. And you do that over and over again, your arm starts getting like, you start getting like really, really tired and like certain muscles that just refuse to work. And like the whole time I, I had the flu, I had a fever. That was horrible. I remember but, you telling me about this, but like over wine and food. And I remember like, oh, like he's probably exaggerating this being so terrible. But now it doesn't seem like you were making any of that up. That's pretty terrible. It was like four days, four of the worst days of my life. Because I just had, I was super sick. When I was there, we were super busy. So they were keeping us on for additional hours. So instead of working a 12-hour shift, we were working like a 16-hour shift. When you're especially if you're sick but you're so exhausted all you want to do is go back and go to sleep and you fall asleep 
and then you wake up like nine hours later and you're like barely rested and then because of the fact that i was sick i was just like even that much worse honestly after that how bad can it be i'm thinking yeah like that type of environment that experience nothing's gonna seem as bad so do you think that any of that prepped you for the caliber of the dining scene that you've been involved with since oh for sure honestly like and something that a skill that i never had before that was just learning how to rest like aggressively rest you know i'm a guy right now like if you told me hey you're gonna have to go walk for 24 hours in 24 hours but you've got the rest this from now to then to like do whatever you want to do i would carve up and i'd go lay in my bed and i would not move you know and then i would be like prepared for it and that's one of the things the the cannery was rough but then the boat is even rougher like the cannery prepares you for the boat but i was working on a boat called the north sea and we would work um 18 on three off so we had a rotation and you would work on the deck of the boat for 18 hours and then as soon as your 18 hours had time limit had hit the captain would be like all right juan um hit the rack and you had three hours like that the timer started then and whether you wanted to sleep for three hours eat for three hours watch tv or watch your movies for three hours it's up to you but after those three hours you're back on deck for another 18 and then you know maybe the first three hours that you get you, you might have a little bit of trouble falling asleep but then the second time the third one the fourth and the fifth until you fill the boat up with crab you're just going sometimes you're just going like 18 and then barely sleeping and then 18 and then barely sleeping you'd run out of calories like high caloric foods would be super essential the best thing in the world for that scenario is a snickers bar commercials are actually totally true you run out of calories and you're just like you take a bite of a snickers within like two minutes your body is turning that into energy it is ridiculous how powerful those things are my other good option for like really high fast quick energy would be english muffins in the toaster and then as soon as they came out you smother them with peanut butter and honey i knew it i was like you're gonna go the peanut butter carb combo that is like instant energy instant energy it works so 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 fast and you constantly drinking coffee and like no matter how strong you make it your shipmates will always tell you that your your coffee's weak but but yeah that was that was crazy and that uh, invaluable lesson from that period of my life to just be like okay you know i just need a rest i was on the boat for a couple seasons and then they consolidated three boats into two boats and being one of the newest guys I was basically told like, hey, you're on standby or you're on leave. And so I came back to Atlanta and you know, spent some money, went traveling, did, did a lot of fun stuff, went to Columbia, took massive road trips, took a train from Seattle to Colorado to visit my sister, did all the fun stuff. And then finally I got back home and I was like, all right, well, I need to do something because I, I don't know when I'm gonna go back to work. And I started working at a, at a restaurant called Bistro VG up in Roswell because it was the same people that I opened the restaurant for when I was 16 for the Sedgwick's. It was the same people, no way. Yeah, they own Bistro VG, they're, they're, they own the Pure Taqueria franchise. Major spots, yeah. Yeah, and so, and they were, like I said, they were the restaurant chores that I worked for when I was 16, and I appreciated working for them when I was 16, because they used to hold people to a high level of accountability in restaurants. So I went back to work for them when I came back from Alaska, and when I was working there, it was with a chef named Richard Velasquez, and I was bartending during the days when the reps would come in and taste at the bar, and so Jen would sit down to taste and she'd be like, Juan, come join us. And I, I already had a passion for wine. And I discovered when I was in Alaska, when the boat crew would get a chance to go out to a hotel in Dutch Harbor called the Grand Illusion, that had a nice, like a fine dining restaurant. And I mean, it's actually pretty spectacular because it's like the fine dining restaurant at the edge of the world. You can imagine the seafood was pretty freaking amazing, you know? So we, we would go there and the staff noticed, or the crew noticed after a while that I could pick bottles of wine. The, the captain would always pick the wine. And one, one time I was like, hey, can I pick a bottle of wine as well? And I ordered a, remember exactly what it was because it was a good deal. It was a 2005 uh, Franciscan Oakville Estates Magnificat. And I looked at it on the list and it was priced for like 65 bucks and I felt like it was underpriced, like they had made a mistake. So I ordered it and nobody was drinking the bottle that the captain ordered, but everybody was drinking the Magnificat, including the, the captain. And then we ordered another bottle. And then he, the next night he was like, let's go back to the Grand Illusion. And we ordered, I think like two more bottles and that was it. That's what they had left. And so like, they were like, from now on you pick the wine for the ship. And so I kind of, you know, realized I had a good palate. But then when I was working at Bistro VG, Jen would always be like, smell this. What do you think it is? And oftentimes enough, I'd be like, oh, that's clearly Pinot Noir. And I, you know, at the time, just like anybody else that starts off in wine, I thought I knew something about wine. And so I was like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna try this while I'm here. I got time, you know. I took the level one test. People would be like, hey, we're tasting Rathman's, you know, we're gonna taste Dom Perignon, do a vertical. 
and she would be like, send Juan. And so I got to go to all these events and I was just like a waiter bartender. And, you know, I'm mostly there with these like managers, general managers and sommeliers. So I got exposed to like that sweet part of that life really quick. It just seemed like, I was like, yeah, maybe I'll do this. And the day that I decided to become, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to sign up for the, or the certified exam like tomorrow. Uh, the captain from the boat texted me and was like, Juan, uh, what's his face? I like, broke his leg. You know, we're down a man. Can you, can you be in Dutch Harbor like tomorrow? And uh, so he was like, snap, snap, fly to Seattle, fly to Anchorage, fly to Dutch Harbor as soon as you can. And uh, it was just one of those things where I was like, all right. Um, so I just thought about it and kind of came to the conclusion that I was like, I'm just going to go down the sommelier path. It really was this decision of like A or B. I mean, honestly, if I could go back in time, if I had just gone and fished, and then come back and then quit that job and gone into the being a sommelier, I would have had like $60,000 more in my bank account. I don't know. Well, at um, the time, that was the, that was the logical choice for you and you were seeing your path in wine and you obviously had a natural talent for it prior to even like, people were noticing the way that you selected wine and how you talked about wine and, and how you tasted it. So then obviously it was natural plus now the opportunity to take it that next step. Yeah, so then I kind of came to the conclusion, I was like, well, I probably need to like figure out where I'm going to go. And so I started doing research and it seemed like the, at the time, the three places in town that you really wanted to wind up at, if you wanted to learn more about wine was either at Woodfire Grill, Restaurant Eugene, or at Bacchanalia. So I kind of went and scoped them all out, decided that I would try my hand, that I, I was kind of leaning towards Restaurant Eugene. It seemed like too perfect. They had a position available for a sommelier listed on Craigslist. And so I went and applied for it was all gung-ho figure out had like lots of restaurant experience i was at level one som and then they offered me a job as back server a busboy so which was you know less than ideal but at the time i was just like you know what i'll get my foot in the door and so i did that and uh didn't pay me enough money so i kept working at bistro vg on the weekends and then at the time because i was before that i was still considering going back to being a fisherman i was actually taking a course to learn how to weld because I figured I would be able to make a lot more money on the fishing boat if I had a welding talent. So I was taking a welding course that started at 8 a.m., then turning around and driving 2 in the afternoon down to be at Eugene at like 3 in the afternoon, working until like 11 o'clock at night, and then working every single day. And it was brutal. I finished the class on welding, but I was like, I need to put all my eggs in one basket. And so... Um, and that goes back to your like realization that like life balance while studying wine while pursuing your career you still needed to have sanity i've always been a hard worker so at some point you just kind of become used to like being like oh i'm a hard worker i, I can just work 60 hours a week every week and you know, that just kind of became like my thing you know and I, when i went to alaska i kind of proved myself and like well i can work you know i can work 18 hours straight and three hours off and like you know it was brutal but i managed it at least to a degree so i just kind of became like okay this is me I, I can plow through it but that's not a healthy lifestyle not sustainable over time not at all and then you know you also not, you, you don't have time to cook for yourself you don't really have time to clean up after yourself everything's a mess if your room's a mess and your mind's a mess you know so yeah it took me i had to tell him like hey i just I, i'm not making enough money as a back server here you know, I have plenty of fine dining experience. I'm a, you know, if I can serve, then I can make enough money where I can stop working my second job. And so that's what we did. And life got significantly better after that. And I was only a server there for like maybe like a month. And then um, a song, assistant song position opened up. So then I got to go into that almost immediately. And then right when I became an assistant song, the owner won a James Beard Award. And so it was like, I mean, that puts butts in seats. And we were also like, he was like, champagne for everyone and we were doing tasting menu with pairings and so i went from like not being a sommelier to being like you know all in with like tasting menu pairings you know vegetarian tasting menu regular tasting menu and i stayed there for almost four and a half years and then that's kind of how i wanted going to noma was because i was there and i was just eventually it's like okay i've gotten about as far as i can get here what am i going to do now i kind of wanted to stay here so that's why the idea of an internship struck me as like being a good option I just straight up like applied for a job at Noma on their website. And then I was translating my CV into Spanish so I could apply at Canroca. And then the day that I finished translating my CV into Spanish, Noma got back to me and they were just like, we don't hire people without uh, like an interview. You have to convince them to let you stage for at least one week. And that's the normal thing. But I wasn't really thinking that they were actually gonna like hire me. I just wanted to go there and learn 
Um, and so I asked them, like, what, what was the longest internship that they would be willing to take? And they said the longest was three months. And so I was like, sign me up. It didn't take, it was not fast like that though, by any means. Like it, it's not, it's not like an easy process. Basically, I mean, I wrote, I corresponded back and forth multiple times, wrote an essay about why I was qualified as a candidate. And eventually they were just like, finally like, okay, you can come work here. And then it was a, a whole new set of challenges just to even go there because Copenhagen is very expensive. How does this all work logistically? Like what an incredible opportunity. And then I'm sure you were like, okay, what did I get myself into, you know? Um, and then I like kind of did the math and it was like, okay, 10,000 bucks just to be able to survive. You know, I got into like fundraising mode. I had distributors donate bottles of wine and, oh, you're gonna donate, you're gonna do an auction. Here's, you know, here's wines. And I got some chefs to come cook and we had, we had a fundraiser raise several thousand dollars that way. Um, I also, uh, my friend Caleb was the beverage director of Atlas. So he worked it out for me where I was able to come to Atlas and just, I think I had, I, he was like, yeah, you know, you're training today. And then after today, he was like, all right, you're on the floor. And I was like, wow, I'm actually really not ready to be on the floor here, but you know, whatever, give me a menu, I'll, I'll memorize it and I'll, I'll make it work. And so I worked at Atlas and then actually at the time, and I worked at the Atlantic Botanical Gardens restaurant as, at lunch uh, as a server, filled my days until I left, making as much money as possible. And then yeah, yeah, that's how I was able to do it. So it just kind of like the pieces fell into place and, uh, and I got, I did enjoy a really great experience there. And I, I got, I got lucky when I got there. Um, one of the guys that's a manager of Noma now, um, his name's Charlie. His wife was the manager of a, a natural wine bar that, you know, I didn't really know much about the natural wine scene. I cultivated mostly like a organic and biodynamic wine list at restaurant Eugene. And that was definitely like what I personally preferred, but I never really got to jump in. And so Den Bandret is the wine bar that is owned by the, biggest importer of natural wines into Denmark and Denmark is one of the world's greatest markets for natural wine so the importer is Rossforth and Rossforth and they have this little wine bar and so they just kind of had like your their pick of the world's best wines and I didn't even know it at the time you know I was just like they were just like have you had this you should try it you know Christian Shida have you had a Shida you should have some Shida you should have some you know Oxenis from Sebastian Ruffo and we were just drinking it like one when I, my first time at Den Bandret it was for Beaujolais Day, and uh, they had purchased a barrel of Beaujolais Nouveau, and they had purchased a barrel of uh, Sebastian Ruffo uh, Oxenis, the whole barrel, and he had flown up with it to Denmark. And so it was like, you know, this pretty awesome winemaker sitting there pouring people wine from carafes that, you know, like here in Atlanta, I can't even, I, you can't even get it unless you ship it. This time talking to you where I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Like, these seem like... This seems like just absolute dream situations where all the stars are aligning for you in that moment to have these experiences. This might sound lame, but like my favorite book for a long time now has been The Alchemist. And if you've ever read it- I have not. I got you. Um, but you know, one of the things that the book makes a point of is like, you know, if you want to fulfill your life's dream, your life's destiny, the, the universe will conspire with you to get you where you need to go. But you have to look for the signs and then you have to follow them. And if you stop following the signs, the signs will stop showing. Whether that's true or not, who knows? But sounds good to me. It sounds like hopeful to me. <laughs> it sounds, well, and it sounds like you put the effort in, like you will make things happen. If, you, if you're able to find the opportunities where you can thrive, like then it's going to move you in the right direction. To me, like I kind of I like that feeling. Like all of this has led you to this place where you, you had an incredible background now, diverse wine experience, a lot of it like, on the floor, on the fly in service. So I think you're kind of the perfect person to ask about this. Like, what do you want people to know about the Atlanta wine scene if they've never been here? I mean, think about all the worldly experiences that you've had and diversity in working with chefs and restaurant owners and things like that and around the world. When you came back to Atlanta after that internship, what were you hoping that Atlanta would be known for? Well, when I came back is when I did, you know, we met through Stinky Wine, which was kind of like the project that derived from the Noma experience. Really, it was actually more derived from the Den Van Dredd experience because I remember thinking, you know, like, wow, this is really cool. And I wish Atlanta had something like this, but they didn't at the time. And there wasn't really, at the time, I, I didn't really feel like there was a big focus on kind of doing what they were doing at Den Van Dredd, which was really amazing wines, but like the lack of pretension, you know, they were very like rock and roll, very like, you know, I'm going to pour you some wine. I hope you like it. If you don't like it, you know, fine. I don't care. You know, whereas like 
make the guest always be right. And sometimes I think the best restaurants in the world realize you have to go all in into a concept and realize that not everybody's going to love you. But when you do that, you can actually wind up in a situation where you actually wind up doing the best that you can because you, you're doing what you feel like you need to do as opposed to like what other people are telling you to do. And that's what the, the best chefs do. And so that was kind of like the idea behind Stanky Wine. And Stanky Wine didn't happen right away because I came back and I had to get a job. So I started working at Atlas again and then went to go open a CLS Steakhouse in the Battery and then left there after about a year. And after about a year, I was just like, man, that's wasted. Like the last year and a half, I had this good momentum. And I was like, what am I going to do? And Brad and I had been talking about creating this Stanky Wine, natural wine pop-up bar. And uh, we were just like, all right, well, let's, um, let's see like where this can go. Um, and so we started planning it. We set it up at Brush. You, I mean, you went many times, so you saw what the, the outline was. And we didn't really know what we were doing at first. It was a total disaster at first. Luckily, people were like pretty nice about it. I mean, the first one was slammed and we couldn't get wine in to people's hands fast enough like all our friends came out and it was just like overwhelming. I would never know that that was a disaster. It's one of my favorite things I ever discovered in Atlanta like who like 10 p.m. open uh go sit in this restaurant but like you're behind the bar slinging wines that like I'd never even heard of. I know that you are you're partnering with chefs that would then come cook in the restaurant. This is all like 10 p.m. on a Thursday and it was amazing. So I could never tell that it would be a disaster at any point in that. Every time I went, I had a great time. We did it basically every Thursday for a little over a year, like a year and two months. And so, you know, you're thinking that's 50 something pop-ups, many that went well and then many that we were just like, honestly, sometimes we would just be so worn out from other things that we just wouldn't even promote it that much. We'd be like, let's not even post about it on Instagram. Six people show up tonight. I'm cool with that. Because the other thing too is on the nights that we were really busy, we were leaving the pop-up at like five or six in the morning sometimes uh, because we had to clean the kitchen and get the entire restaurant ready to go. And sometimes, I mean, we had nights where we were doing 65 covers after 10.30 p.m. That's the entire restaurant getting sat more, sometimes more business than they were doing from five to 10 p.m. And then, the after everybody would leave, we had to get the restaurant looking perfect for the next day, including the kitchen. And so sometimes it'd be like washing dishes at like four in the morning being like, man. Well, yeah. And then you're going into your weekend at Atlas and like fine dining with the contrast of that one. I can't even, not only like physically of like, the hours and the the time spent on that but like mentally the switch from the two very contrasting wine environments yet you bring that knowledge to both settings and i've always found that amazing so even when you were drained it must have been pretty interesting to like flip a switch somehow to go into your other setting it was it was just wild it was something that we were like okay you know we need to continue to evolve in order to a stay relevant or b like make this sustainable because you know, this is definitely like an additional job. We, did you come for the one that we did after Mexico when we got back from Mexico? No, we were out of town, but you had some of the wines the following week. So I've tasted the wines, but I didn't come to the Mexico welcome back party. So the Mexico thing was kind of like the, evol the evolution of the concept. And that was kind of where we wanted to take it, you know, where we flew to Mexico with, uh, with a chef, went there for a wine festival to like a winery that basically unknown in the U.S., uh, that visited two wineries, one that was only on second year that is probably going to become pretty well known in the future. We actually filmed the whole thing in case we could find a network that would be willing to entertain this idea. But what we did is we went down there with a the chef, cooked down there for people down there, and then turned around, brought back some of the ingredients that we were cooking with down there, brought back mezcals and eau de vies and brought back wines, and then did a pop-up here. We couldn't really sell the wine, so we were kind of just you know, giving it away, hoping people would tip us enough to cover the cost of it. And we filmed that whole thing here, which we've got a video that's finishing up editing is in the final stages. We'll probably have it in like a month or two. So Brad and I are going to see what we can do with that video. But that concept of like traveling somewhere, grabbing some stuff that you'll never be able to experience here, whether it be like food items that we can legally bring into the U.S. or beverages and then coming back and sharing them with people here and making that like a bigger part of the party and kind of connecting the people like our friends from Mexico and their products with our friends in America, that was a, that was big fun and a good continuation of the project. So we're definitely going to hopefully move in that direction. And then Brad and I did our last pop-up around this December or November of last year. And then we decided we were going to take a break for the beginning of the year. I opened the garden room in that period of time. So I was super busy. So we do want to 
continue to do stuff down the road, whether it's like private tastings or things like that. Or what we'd really like to do is maybe create like a stanky wine pop-up that we could do like maybe two weekends in Savannah or two weekends in Charleston. Cause honestly, we, we love the Southeast and we'd love to be able to explore it a little bit more and get to know more people and do what we're doing, which is, you know, you know, putting wines in front of people that might not normally drink them. And uh, you know, whether it's Birmingham, Nashville, Charleston, Savannah, uh, there's Asheville. There's a lot of cool places really close to Atlanta that, that would be fun to, to go to. So hopefully we get a chance to do that a little down the road. But like I said, right now, the plan is to make plans when we know how to make plans again. It's hard to plan ahead in anything. And I can't think past July at this point. So no, but like you're making me excited that, you know, I do think that there'll be a time where all of these things can revive. We haven't had a stinky wine in 2020. So maybe we won't, but it'll come back better and stronger with all these new ideas uh, in the next year. And that, that's, that's encouraging. I really hope you keep doing this. It's something I tell people about the Atlanta wine scene. I think you guys have been a really big building block of something super unique here. Um, and the way that you bring all of these diverse experiences to that bar, that night, your stories along with the wines and why you love them is a huge part of bringing the Atlanta wine community together. So I really can't wait for the revival of Stanky Wine, whatever that looks like in the future. Speaking of which, um, I thought maybe I could show a couple of my favorite wines that I've been sipping on during the summertime. These are things I put on the shelf over at Savvy. So we have them uh, at the Savvy on Roswell Road. Yes, I was going to say, what are you into? I learned so many new wines from you and have kind of gone down rabbit holes because of wines you've shared. So I really want to know what you're liking right now. What's, what's good? So I've been focusing a little bit, I've been working on a little more with, uh, with Uva Imports, which is a, a importing company based here, here out of Atlanta. Um, this is, a, I think, a challenging time for some of the smaller importers. So um, here, I'll grab, let me grab this bottle. Um, labels that I see about, I go, oh my gosh, that's a stinky wine label. Like it's to the point where like I can recall being opened up on new wines because of sitting at a stinky wine pop-up. So I'm always looking for what you have to show or what you're sharing. So, I mean, you remember we got so swept up into the pet nat thing. The very first summer that we were doing it, we were just like tasting all these wines. And I was like, I just, I just want to do only pet nats. And Brad and I were like, okay, let's just call, let's get pet nasty for the summer. We're only going to feature, only going to feature pet nats. And so for like four months, we only did sparkling wines, so like every color, every style, all the grapes. And it was, they were all different. They were all super unique. But also it's like a science experiment every time you open. And, and I was like, you know, it's alive. That's the thing. I mean, if you read the natural wine books, that's what they say. Like wine has got, you know, living microorganisms in it. Um, so anyway, so this is one that I've just been, the, first of all, this producer, uh, Demarie, they're kind of in the northern part of, uh, of Italy in the, in the Piedmont. And I've enjoyed their wines. So we've had their wines on the wine list of many restaurants that I've worked in. Um, and they make some really beautiful very classic, very traditional wines from Nebbiolo, from like Barbaresco. This is, this is very different. Their, their winery is actually a little bit further up north in the Roero. They, they make this wine from a couple select vineyards in the Roero. Um, my buddy Steven that sells the wine for um, Uva here in Atlanta, I was talking to him about this earlier, and he said that he felt like the Roero is likely to be a place that's going to hold a lot more prestige. Like they've kind of subdivided their, their vineyards and their areas very much in the same way that Barolo and Barbaresco has been subdivided. And... Um, they just don't have the, the prestige, I think, right now. But this is a like, funky wine that they, they make from the Royal, from very select vineyards. It's mostly Arnais with Nebbiolo, um, fermented in the bottle. Kind of what you would expect from a sparkling rosé. It's got a lot of, like, kind of fresh fruit character, you know, like melanin, raspberry, and cherry. But it also has a little bit of the funkiness that you expect from something that's in contact with, it, with its leaves still. Very fresh because it's in contact with the leaves, but absolutely super delicious. Not super expensive. I can't remember the price off the top of my head, but it's under 30 bucks a bottle. All, all, all of these wines are under 30 bucks a bottle. Um, and like I said, I did put this on the shelf over at Savvy, uh, at least the one on uh, Roswell Road. So if anybody wants to check it out, I think it's freaking delicious. And like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm obsessed with Pet Nats. So, but then this is a kind of a funky looking bottle. If you're familiar with Gattinara, it kind of looks a little bit like a Gattinara bottle, but it's not quite a square. But this is a producer called La Morete, and it's a Lugana Benedictus. Have you had this wine? Not that one, but the same producer. I've actually had, I had a rosé, a, a sparkling rosé, I believe. Probably a Bartolino rosé. Yeah, two, that's yeah, two, two Luganas. Um, one that's more like a, the way I liken it in my mind is one that's more kind of like in like the Village Chablis level or Chablis style. 
it's, it's very kind of like steely and minerally. And then one that's a little bit more like a premier crew Chablis and then it seems like neutral oak and he just gets like the kiss of oak, as they say. Um, and this is the one that gets a little kiss of oak, um, gets to spend, I think like four months in Tineau. But it's a, it's a region, I haven't had a chance to visit Italy yet. I'm uh, learning it through the wines. But this is one that I thought, first of all, like when I go, I'm going to go here for sure. It sounds like one of the most gorgeous places. Uh, Lugana is in the very southern part of Lake Garda. So Lake Garda, from what I understand, 20-something miles long, several miles wide. It's deeper than the Adriatic Sea. So it's obviously gorgeous because it's in Italy. And uh, it was carved out by a glacier that, I guess, it kind of stopped its tracks forward or south but so while it was there before it receded uh it carved out the lake and then on the very southern end of the lake it compacted these clay soils before kind of creating the hills behind the clay soils where the clay compacted and then started to undulate and so this little small like seven square mile region right in the very southern end of lake arda with super compact clay soils is where they grow the lugana and the, the family that makes this wine the lamorette family the two brothers one of them is a, a doctor if I remember correctly, and uh, has a firm grasp on science since he's done a lot of clonal research. And so they used to think that this was Trebbiano, but now um, they were actually able to prove that it's actually a different grape, different varietal called uh, Terbiano. It's related to Verdicchio, if that tells you anything about the, the flavor profile. Not super crisp and lean, but also definitely not like rich and buttery by any means. Just well-rounded, smooth, balanced, kind of very mineral-driven, but, but still very fruit-driven complex white wine from the region, a region that I'd love to go to. I love exploring new wines, especially something that tastes like, just doesn't taste like something that I'm super used to, you know, I'm like, it's just yeah, like, I'm like, I'm super wine. intrigued when I hear about stuff like that, that like, it doesn't seem to register in my database of what I may have tasted before. I'm even more intrigued to seek yeah. it out. So like I said, and like, it's like $28.99 or something like that at the shelf at, uh, on the shelf at uh, Savvy. It's not super expensive. And then this, this is one of my, well, this is just a producer that I didn't learn about until recently, but as soon as I learned about them, I was just like, wow, this is super cool. I definitely want to get to know more about this. And I've actually found some, uh, I said I've been doing some cellar work. One of the sellers that I was doing work in, I found somebody that had an, a Larco Amarone. This is Larco's very much like entry level wine. Uh, so um, it's like, I want to say right around the early 20s as far as the price point. But it's a wine from uh, the area around uh, Valpolicella. This, this particular one, it, this wine is light, but not suit, like it's, it's weird. Like, it can be considered light. It's definitely not a full-bodied, it's not like a rich wine, especially when compared to something like an Amarone. But uh, it's not super light. Like, I've had Valpolicellas or uh, Rosso Veroneses before that were just kind of like, mm. um, this one's definitely got some complexity to it. The story behind it, though, is super crazy. So the guy that makes this wine, uh, Luca, was like very young, young teens uh, when he was dating his granddaughter, uh, Quintarelli's granddaughter. And Luca was uh, all dead set on racing motorcycles for a living. But as a favor to his girlfriend, she asked him if he could help her dad out in his garden and in his vineyards. Quintarelli, I guess, didn't really have a lot of vineyards, but he, he got Luca to help him out, I think first in the, in, the, in the garden and then in the vineyards. And at a young age, like I, went on like, I think when he was like 17, he, he was like, hey, I, I changed my mind about being a motorcycle racer, I wanna do this. Uh, and so he started learning from one of the most iconic producers and one of the most iconic wine growing countries in the world. And uh, at a fairly young age, started planting. I think he planted his first vineyard when he was in, like early 20s. And uh, he kind of is in the same vein as Quintarelli in that he doesn't really, he doesn't follow the, the playbook. Like you see, this is a Rosso del Veronese. So it's just a JIGT, a table wine. The, I think the vineyard where he has is planted, he has the traditional varieties of, uh, of Valpolicella. So like mostly Corvina, but like Rondinella, Molinara, uh, Negrara. Um, there's others, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. But he also plants Sangiovese, he plants Cabernet Franc, he plants Cabernet Sauvignon, I think he plants Merlot. And this is a blend of the traditional varietals, Corvina, Rondinella, Molinar. But it has like about 15% Sangiovese, which is why it's just labeled as a table wine. But that's what he likes to do. And he just does whatever he wants to do. His wines tend to be very different, but the, the quality is definitely very high. Um, right now you can get these wines for a pretty good price. It sounds fantastic. A lot of times price will keep people from taking a chance on something they're not familiar with, but that's an excellent combination to have it be kind of new and different but then also approachable price. You're, you're so knowledgeable about wine and Atlanta is extremely lucky to have you. I cannot wait to share your story. I'm gonna have people uh, know to reach out to you on Instagram. Is that the best way to reach you and find out what's going on? Absolutely. I mean, I'm on literally every single social media platform uh, as someone. Uh, I locked onto that pretty, pretty early on in my career and just realized it was kind of good to have like a 
steady handle, but Instagram is basically like where I, I spend most of my time, but, but yeah, uh, that you can certainly reach out to me there. The other thing I was gonna mention what I brought up before. So, uh, Chris Grossman, the chef that I used to work with at Atlas, he's getting ready to open a restaurant. So if everything works out, hopefully in the fall, that's going to be where I'm going to wind up and I'll be over there either as beverage director or as wine director. And so I just wanted to like mention that because I'm super excited about that project, whether I'm a part of it or not, like I said, cause you never know what's going to happen. He purchased the restaurant that was uh, horseradish grill, basically gutting it and remodeling it. And, uh, it's a beautiful space. It's got a huge garden that they're kind of replanting with a lot of things, but it's going to have an organic garden that's going to be visible from the main dining room, 20 seat bar and, uh, about 130 seat, uh, outdoor dining area in a private dining room that'll hold about 40 people. So it's gonna be a, it's a pretty pretty massive space and it's gonna be Chef Chris and um, the team that he's assembling um, is gonna be like, you know, legendary stuff. Um, I know a couple of people that are on board and they're people that I'm super excited to work with. Um, many of them I've worked with in the past. That's uh, something to look for too in the fall and the, the wine list will be all organic or biodynamic wines, not to be cliche, but that's just kind of already been the thing, you know, and the fact that the restaurant's gonna have an organic garden, I don't know, it's gonna be a great project. I am, I am so excited for you. This is crazy news. Like now I'm, look, again, you've given me things to look forward to and to think about and like be thankful for in a crazy, crazy time. This project sounds amazing. That space is perfect. The location is phenomenal. So I'm really excited for you. Keep us posted on what happens. Sure, um, it'll probably open sometime in the fall. I've been in the restaurant industry long enough. I've opened enough restaurants that you know say a set date is kind of foolish especially when you have this many factors but yeah it's going to be there that thing's going to be you know whether i'm at the helm or anybody else like that restaurant's going to be very successful it's in a great location and uh it's it's already got a great team behind it so um super psyched for them um super psyched to be a part of it i'm so thrilled i'm thankful for your time and this has been awesome you are the epitome of how wine can be part of your life in the craziest ways, even when you're doing other things, and that the wine education and the connections to the people, and that always drives the next phase of things. And so I'm, I'm thankful for your stories. I can't wait for more people to connect with you. And I can't wait to see you in person again and cheers sometime soon. <laughs> oh, as soon as we can, we're gonna throw a stanky wine party just to get over 2020, you know what I'm saying? Whatever it is, however we do it, something good is gonna happen before 2020 is over. The, the whole year can't be a dumpster fire. There has to be a, some kind of silver lining. I appreciate that and I'm so on board with whatever that will be. I'll talk to you soon. Tell Ryan I said hi. I will, yes, thank you. Talk to you later, bye. tuning in to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. This is Kelly signing off. Until next time, when we share stories of people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry and the wine world beyond. If you want more adventures with us, check us out online and on Instagram at a cork in the road. And you can also visit our website, www.acorkintheroad.com for all kinds of updates and to sign up for our monthly newsletter. Cheers and take care.